0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis in the life sciences industries to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm excited to welcome Lawrence Reed, CEO of Decibel Therapeutics. Dr. Reed has asked me to remind the audience that during the podcast, he will be talking about future aspects of Decibel and its products, and that these will be forward-looking statements that are made pursuant to the safe harbor provisions of the federal securities laws. Hence, he would like to remind you that biotech and drug development are risk-laden undertakings, and that for each of the programs and product candidates discussed, Significant investment, uncertainties and risks remain in their future. More details are available on their company website and in their filings with the SEC. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lawrence. Great to meet you, Rahul. Thanks very much for having me, excited to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, same here, Lawrence. And so set the stage for the conversation. We'd love to start off and just talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to Decibel.
1: So I've been in biotech now for embarrassingly almost 30 years. And you know, I got started as a scientist. I have a PhD in molecular biology that I garnered a long time ago, back in the old country in London, and got into biotech, you know, very luckily. I mean, I think one's career is so often shaped by strokes of fortune. And I was very lucky in 1993 to get a chance, make a transition, you know, into biotech at a company called Millennium, which is of course now part of Takeda, but had a wonderful trajectory of itself. And I think what's gotten me excited over the past Thirty years, and I think has been a theme with greater or lesser periods of success along the way. Has you know a belief in the power of innovation as a way to drive new medicines. And so the companies that I get most excited about being involved in, whether as an employee or a couple I've advised along the way, is you know what can really be a powerful new technology or a new piece of biology that really gives us a chance to shape some new medicines that are going to change the lives of people who have a significant challenge in their life, however life-threatening or otherwise. And so that's taken me from genomics. It's taken me into cancer. It's taken me into inflammation, it's taken me into rare diseases, most recently into fields of hearing loss. It's been a fantastic ride. I think it's been a privilege to be part of this industry and also to be part of this ecosystem in the Boston area over the past 30 years and how much it's grown with some really interesting catalysts of that. So I've had a lot of fun, worked with some fantastic people, been part of some great companies, had some challenges and ups and downs along the way, but sort of scientist to business development executive, And now lucky enough to serve as a CEO, which has been a lot of fun and a different set of challenges.
0: Wonderful. And Lawrence, you've been a CEO at a few different companies now. I'm curious, given your role at Decibel versus when you were a first-time CEO, what are things that you have done differently the second, third time around being CEO that you didn't necessarily do the first time around?
1: (laughs) go straight for the tough question. Uh, That's a good question. So properly speaking, this is my second time of being a CEO. I was the CEO of a company called Warp Drive, which is a private company that I was CEO of for about three years. And I've been at Decibel now a little bit over two years. And one of the things about CEO is by definition, it's a unique position within the company. And there are many learnings involved in that, dealing with the board of directors Dealing with your colleagues, how do you manage and try and shape and, and lead an executive team? And then one thing which didn't come naturally to me at some level was sort of being aware of the, the impact of the damn title, meaning that, that you have to be quite thoughtful about what you say to people All the time, which is doesn't come naturally to me. I'm a fairly open, straightforward person. And you realize that suddenly, just because of this title and role, that suddenly people, through no fault of their own, but they put undue weight on statements that one occasionally makes and you just have to become really thoughtful about how you approach a conversation and why you are being transparent, why are you asking a question? However, even if it's a completely innocent question, people can sometimes read things into it. So I think really learning to understand how you sort of message things that you're trying to work on, communicate very clearly about what you're trying to do and why you think it's important as a CEO. These aren't things that are necessarily obvious when you first start doing the job. I think I've gotten better at that and providing, you know, this is the context, this is what I'm trying to do here, this is why I think it might be important for the company, hopefully this is how I can help you. I'm really trying to be really clear about communicating some of that. There are many other things like I've learned, you know, how to deal with the board of directors now being involved in a public company. But I think that that's one that sort of is not obvious when you start, you start the role. And I like to think of myself as a fairly open and approachable type of person and still behave like that. I like the work we do. and I like the people I work with. and I want to be part of that, you know, the the community in a very active, intimate way on a a daily basis. And then you just have to realize you have to be thoughtful about what you say and communicate to people. And people sort of tend to listen and can join up dots that sometimes shouldn't be joined up or don't need to be joined up if you're not careful and really clear about what you're trying to achieve. That's sort of one of my biggest slightly conceptual lessons, I would say, over the last few years.
0: Wonderful piece of advice, Lawrence. I wish I had met you a few years ago. I've, <laughs> I've learned this perhaps the hard way of you know, the impact that any conversation can have on your team and really building kind of self-awareness and empathy around how others may view what you're saying. So it's a, that's a wonderful point. I know that you sit on the board of another biotech company, Garuda Therapeutics. I'm wondering how that role is fundamentally different than your CEO role. And what I mean by that is it's a different hat for you. Yeah. And with that context switching, where are there areas where you have to be like, ah, that's not really my role. I'm not a CEO of this company. I'm on a board and I have to approach this a bit differently.
1: That's a great question. Firstly, I've only been the CEO there for you know, barely a quarter. We have our first proper in-person board meeting coming up shortly. The CEO there, Devan is really impressive first-time CEO and somebody I was introduced to, some of the early investors. And I think the biggest thing, I think, always being on a board is how do you offer advice and then step back and let management, the CEO or management, make their own decisions. And to me, the board members, for me, that I enjoy working with the most, I feel like I can have a, a robust conversation and you know potentially disagree with them or agree with them or disagree with them. And then the discussion or the debate I feel like Lawrence heard my opinion. You got to go make the decision and, and go do what you think is the best thing for the company. And I think good board members want to be heard and then they're willing to empower you. So I try to bring that model. Devanni is a first time CEO, he's a scientist. And I think he put me on the board. He thinks he can learn from some of the scars I have. And so for me, it's about how can I advise him, help him with some of the things that I've seen that have been challenges to me as a CEO or challenges to me as an executive and haven't been lucky enough to be around this for quite a long time, and trying to cultivate a relationship where I give him frank advice, and including where I wouldn't do it that way, I would do it this way, but you know, convey sort of the trust and support. It's like, I'm here for you, I'm on the board, my job is to advise, I kind of hope you listen most of the time, but that doesn't mean you have to do what I would do or what I suggest, but it's like, how do you provide the advice, provide the benefit, and then support person, somebody who might, you know, might not make the same decision. It's that and being able to step back and how strongly to impose an opinion based on what you've seen versus, you know, where it's less important. So I think it's that just understanding ultimately that you're generally speaking, you're an advisor rather than a doer. Obviously that presumes that everything is going in a generally constructive way. At least that's how I see it. And that's the kind of relationship I'm building with Vanet, which is fun. It's my first time on a board. As I say, with the first time CEO. So we've been trying yeah. to help him with some of uh, say some of the scars that I've been able to garner over the years.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I know it's only been a short amount of time. Are there areas that come to mind where sitting on a board has changed the way you approach your role as CEO or not yet?
1: Not yet. I haven't even been to a full board meeting yet. It's it's just been a quarter, so I don't have any great examples there. One thing, you'll appreciate this being with your interest in talent. I mean, compensation is such an area now of, it's a real challenge, right? I mean, this industry has now become so talent sensitive and so talent competitive that compensation is a constant topic. So in decibel, we try to be very proactive in in making sure that our people are compensated you know, aggressively relative to, and that we understand where the market is. And So that's immediately translated into some of the discussions at Caruda that we're building a team there. I'm already trying to think about compensation structures and, and so seeing that from a different lens i mean the cell therapy world we're in the gene therapy world these are sort of still subsectors of biotech a lot of competition for talent in both places extreme in both cases and certainly there are parallels there that are, say yet like oh i never thought of that before but seeing it through that other lens of the board and watching a ceo grappling with how do i you know attract and retain talent and that mirrored to what we think about a lot is incredibly valuable. So it's just just sort of seeing it through the other side of the lens of different ideas about, you know, in this city, it's, I mean, talent war is such a cliche, right? But I think in some of these specialist areas, that finding and keeping great talent is essential. And so, and so paying people aggressively and fairly is really, really important.
0: Yeah, I agree. And you're right, there's this talent war, talent crisis that's underway in biotech. And, you know, I think the best relationships between a CEO and a board member, it seems like this is what you were mentioning, tend to be kind of mutually beneficial, where both parties can learn from one another, where you can see things through the lens of someone else and how they're approaching it.
1: That's exactly right. And at some level, I mean, this is the industry that's, you know, I have a couple of board members who are probably younger than me and a couple of board members who have a few years of, of experience. But it, it we're all like, I mean, I've been doing it 30 years, but the whole industry is what maybe we're heading towards 50 years. We're still young. We're still learning about business models and, you know, another topic I don't know if we'll get to, you know, how do big companies and small companies continue to learn to work better together? I think we're not done with that experiment by a long way, in, at least in my opinion. And so I think we're all learning both individually and collectively. And, uh, you know, and every every time, you know, the stock market, I mean, just what are we li- living through right now? It's like a stock market downturn, which is lucky I'm old enough to remember 2008. So that's, you know, it, it gives us sort of perspective on these things but this is different and i'm at a different company at a different period of time and part of a sector gene therapy that's you know at a particular evolution as well and so these things come together it's still new circumstances which which most of the time is fun sometimes it gets a bit scary but most of the time it's it, it's fun and it's challenging it's like how do you keep an open mind and and who can you learn from who can you collaborate with to a greater or lesser degree so you're trying to bring the best collective thinking to what the company's trying to achieve
0: With that great context now, and before we get into the work that you're pursuing at Decibel, talk to us about the hearing loss market, the unmet need, and perhaps challenges and opportunities that are not obvious to many of the listeners.
1: Love to, and I I have to. I'll start by noting, you know, I'm a newbie in this field, and I um, came to Decibel through a couple of friends of the company and um, Third Rock, with who might work previously as the lead investor in Decibel as it got started, but I had never had the misfortune of a particular family member or friend who was particularly afflicted by a hearing challenge. It was a, it was a new field to me, and I've been learning as a biotech person, there's this massive paradox, which is that you know, around the world, there are literally hundreds of millions of people who are afflicted by some form of hearing loss. And there are many different etiologies of hearing loss, and let's, let's talk about a couple of them. And yet, the standard of care in every case, the best quote-unquote standard of care is an assistive device, and there are no pharmaceutical inventions at all for any form of hearing loss or balance disorders, which is the other area that's also mediated by ear that we work on at Decimal. As a biotech person, there's this, this incredible paradox. You've got this huge area of unmet need and no approved pharmaceuticals, and today the playing field is really dominated by small companies, for which we think is a leader. But in terms of the need, It's like a lot of large, complex diseases. You know, it's massive. It's clearly very heterogeneous. If you think about the sort of the trajectory of one's life, hearing is mediated inside your inner ear by these very specialized sensory cells called air cells that transduce a mechanical signal, namely a sound wave from your inner ear into your brain and create the concept of sound. And those cells, they basically, in simple terms, they die off over the course of your life, almost kind of linear. Pretty much in all of us, as far as we can tell, and so we all hit a threshold somewhere between middle age and the end, where you kind of hit a threshold and your hearing starts to, you know, become much less sensitive than it was than it was previously, and your balance the same, basically for the same reason. So that's sort of a backdrop of why you know ultimately we're all trending towards a loss of hearing acuity. Decent period of time before you reach the end. So that's sort of the macro, and then on top of that, there are various acute kinds of events or chronic events that can make that situation worse. So for example, things like chronic or extreme noise are the most obvious ones. So we hear a lot about people on construction work sites, for example, over of times. The veterans have a you know, significant hearing challenge for veterans. There are certain kinds of acute chemicals that a couple of drug types that often can be very damaging to the inner ear. And we actually work on one aspect of that problem. And then back at the beginning of your life, something that we're very interested in decibel, you know, the genetics. And there are probably about 100 different known genetic forms of hearing loss where children are born with a congenital loss of hearing that sometimes then, if it's not complete, can then often degrade. So there's a very heterogeneous set of conditions, no approved therapies. You know, the simple devices, if your ear has some degree of functionality, then people, you know, often wear hearing aids. And people hate wearing hearing aids, starting with my beloved mother. And so compliance there is low. Kids loathe wearing hearing aids. They amplified poorly. Now, to be fair, the technology is improving as companies like Bose and others come to the field, right? The caliber of technology there is improving, but it's still a fundamental challenge. The, The sort of next degree of sophistication, if you will, Also, wonderful technology is a device called a a cochlear implant, which is essentially a device that's implanted surgically into your inner ear that essentially hardwires a signal directly into your nervous system, into into your brain, which is used generally in pretty severe forms of hearing loss. But in both cases, you know, it's an assistive device. It's not curative, it's not disease, it's not disease modifying in, in the terms that we like to think of in the pharmaceutical industry. And in every case, you're getting a form of hearing that is incredibly coarse compared to most of us are lucky enough to be born with and and live most of our lives with. And so, for example, if, if you have a child that's born profoundly deaf, then that's referred to medically as a neurodevelopmental emergency. We acquire most of our linguistic skills during the first two to three years of our life. It often takes a year or two before a child is definitively diagnosed. And so you've already put a big dent in that window. And, you know, we estimate that if you have a cochlear implant and you put your child into sort of a normal scholastic environment where so much of their learning and emotional development and, you know, their ability to interact with other young people, with adults, with teachers, you know, make friendships is driven by a social interaction, which is driven by language and driven by the emotional and cognitive development that follows from that, that if your child with a cochlear implant, put them in that kind of environment, they're probably picking up maybe a third to a half of what's going on during these incredibly precious, formative years of a child's life. And you know the vision really i think of the field is we think we can do better than that and it might take a while and there's certainly plenty of risks and, and journeys to be had there but it's an aspiration to you know can we restore a form of hearing to people at whatever stage of their life they're losing it that is physiologically pure and gets you the sophistication and the thing that's you're hearing like many of our senses is incredibly sophisticated nuanced multidimensional type of capability and the sort of the ability to hear a you know, a raw noise, we, you know, we measure your hearing, we put you in a quiet room and we just raise the volume of the sound until, yep, I can hear it now. You then put somebody in a a restaurant or a social situation where there's background noise, where there are multiple people in a conversation and the ability to hear words and noise as it's referred to can be massively much more difficult than your ability to hear in you know, a single pure sound. So for example, often means you can have a pretty reasonable conversation like one-on-one, but if you then put that person in a social setting, a little group dinner or whatever, it's much more difficult to participate. And you get a sense when that plays out in old people, you get the loss. So I talked about kids and it's about building connectivity, driving cognitive development early in life. Later in life, it's about maintaining connectivity to your family, to your loved ones. And the maintenance of cognitive health goes hand in hand with that. We don't completely understand that later in life, but it's loss of hearing is the single biggest risk factor in terms of cognitive decline late in life. So early in life and late in life are sort of ways to think about the impact of hearing on so much of who we are and and our mental acuity, both early and late in life. So that's sort of my take on whether opportunities and challenges with the devices and it was a whole, this was a whole new world to me, that was what got me really excited to be part of just this sort of breaking new field. And it's really what brings all my colleagues to work on a daily basis.
0: And I'm also you know, very new to the space out of curiosity, how's diagnostic testing for hearing loss and specifically, you know, I'm thinking about endpoints?
1: That's a great question. And yeah. the answer quite interesting, slightly paradoxical answer as well in that. Again, in, in much of the developed world, you know, we rip children out of their mother's arms within 24, 48 hours, and we when we play some sounds to them, and you see, so you get a basic hearing test within 48 hours of being born. So that's a great start, right? Because particularly if you're born congenitally without hearing, then that's a really important intervention. Later in life, starting almost as soon as you leave the hospital, it falls off pretty fast. And Really interesting comparison to our eyes and our ophthalmic health, which of course, you know, in my age, right? You go to an ophthalmologist once a year or so and get some new spectacles, right? And we just don't tend to think about our hearing until it really severely starts to impact, or you really pick it up, whether it's a child or an adult, right? So the diagnostic procedure, if you don't catch it very early, is very weak. And when you listen, to, when you talk to families where they're working through their child being diagnosed very early. While the child is young, very frustrating process of understanding what's going on, understanding what, if anything, can be done about it. And as I often takes you to a device which is not a very satisfactory output, particularly for the young child involved. And that process is very, it's very inefficient. It's frustrating. It's distressing. People, parents, trying to understand what the impact of this on my child. To give you know, somebody's diagnosed within the first few years of life. I think they can pretty quickly figure out this is going to have an impact now, and it's going to impact my child to some degree for the rest of their life, which is generally true. It's quite frustrating. Beyond that, as we think about some genetic forms of hearing that we think represent really interesting opportunities to intervene, so we've got this general diagnostic problem, and then, and then underneath we need to really try and encourage people to think or physicians, ENTs, audiologists, general practitioners to really think about, you know, what's the genetic impact? And there are better genetic testing. We're involved in a genetic testing program, which is significantly driven, you know, as educational goals to start with. Of Can we get these physicians thinking about genetics as a not so infrequent cause of hearing loss? And obviously, we're trying to think about patient populations that we can ultimately treat. But it's also just about you know an educational process because understanding the genetics of the condition can often be informative about the trajectory that your child might be on and what might happen down the road, which is really valuable to a family, even if today there are no therapies or perhaps ways to intervene in that. So it's a great question. It's getting better, it has a long way to go. And even in the just in the US, very heterogeneous, depending on you know where you live, which city you're in, here in Boston. Of course, we have a couple of institutions with incredible ability to understand and and help people with hearing challenges elsewhere in the country, much more heterogeneous in terms of Mm. great diagnosis, genetics, thinking about the cutting edge of maintenance of hearing health. So a way to go there, I would say. Yeah,
0: got it. And I hope what happens, and I'm curious if, if you've already seen this, where more and more investment in the development of therapeutics for hearing loss, that hopefully drives better diagnostics as well.
1: All the way, right, as the rare disease industry has taught us over the past 30 or 40 yeah. years, is that, that whenever you have an ability to treat, the impetus to find the patients is, is significantly increased. So that's exactly right.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so now talk to us about how Decibel is approaching this unmet need and where you are from a development perspective.
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Decibel is about six years old. And got started by a syndicate of investors uh, led by Third Rock back in 2016 and has been very much driven on the belief that there was a wave of molecular innovation coming with respect to understanding mechanisms of hearing loss in the inner ear and therefore ultimately therapeutic you know routes to go after that. At our core, we've been driven by biology. How could we better understand the mechanisms and the cells of the inner ear at a molecular level in ways that would inform mechanism of pathogenesis, signaling mechanisms, um, cellular interactions in the ear, and really use genomics to lay down a really sort of molecular catalog of molecular composition of the all the cells of the inner ear. And against that backdrop, we've worked on different types of therapeutic candidate ideas for the inner ear, including small molecules, some protein approaches you know, and gene therapy. Where we are now is I would say in the last three years or so, we've to focus on a pipeline of gene therapies. We have a small molecule that maybe I could talk about in a few minutes, which is quite exciting, but we really think that gene therapy for the inner ear is potentially a very, very powerful interface of a technology with an mm-hmm. organ and um, gene therapy for the inner ear can be very powerful. Your inner ear is this tiny enclosed compartment, and in terms of gene therapy, we access the inner ear through a surgical intervention, and we basically can deliver tiny, tiny amount of drug, essentially directly to the cells that we're trying to affect and bring our our rescuing gene into. It's a very powerful local application of you know a fundamentally powerful technology, namely the ability to you know manipulate the genome of, of a person through the introduction of a new gene or genes, and so we pretty excited you know as are other people about the power of gene therapy for the inner ear, and so now we're really focused on bringing gene therapy to the inner ear, and, and our pipeline has sort of two components like that. Firstly, there are a number of genetic, simple, monogenic genetic forms of hearing loss. And we're aiming to treat those very early in a child's life and bring a wild-type copy of a gene where a child has inherited a mutant copy from mom and dad. And then the next generation will be gene therapies that are regenerative medicines. This decline of hair cell numbers that I talked about, really the holy grail is can we regenerate those hair cells? against that natural or environmentally driven decay and turn around hearing loss in people later in their lives. So that's a couple of just different buckets of how we think about gene therapy, but pretty excited despite not the investor's favorite topic these days, but um, nonetheless, we're really excited to be part of that broader field and really see the inner ear as as one of the vanguards of, of the next generation of gene therapy.
0: Right. And Lawrence, talk to us a little bit about why perhaps gene therapy has fallen out of favor with investors from your perspective.
1: Yeah. It's so it's been a rough year or two, right? You know, introducing a new gene into target organ sounds great in theory, but you know, people can't people understood that 30 years ago. And gene therapy also took some pretty severe knocks in, in the late 1990s with, with notable negative events. You know, very unfortunate circumstances and took a while to recover from that. But even now, I think the last two or three years, can we get our genes to be durably expressed in the tissue where they come to reside? So it's been a problem. And then there have been various problems that, in simple terms, are to do with just the amount of drug that we have to administer such that enough drug ends up in the right place to achieve the pharmacologic effect that we're seeking. But the excess drug and, and what it does, for example, in tissues like the liver, those side effects are really, you know, in simple terms, have been the other category of challenges. And um, those are reasons why we're excited about the ear, because the ear is so small and because it's enclosed, we expect to deliver perhaps three to four orders of magnitude less drug than people have to deliver to try and influence the liver or, you know, the skeletal muscle. And so, There are very significant advantages there, which is why we're so excited about gene therapy in the ear. I think it's been a sort of um, succession of not such great news since there were some good advances in the eye a few years back now, and the eye shares certain characteristics with the ear, which underlies some of the things I've been talking about. And then more recently, it's generalizing a little bit, but those have been a couple of the the real sets of problems. And um, I'm an optimist, and there's a lot of very smart people working with very sophisticated technologies, and we're going to get better at, at being more potent with our molecules, targeting them better to the right kinds of tissues, and just improving that sort of ratio of how much drug you need to achieve the pharmacology in the right place. We're excited about the opportunities in the year. I think a lot of the challenges in the field broadly, we believe do not apply to the year. Now, of course, we've got our own way to go yet yeah, to really prove that to people, but I think just in terms of the, the magnitude of the amount of drug we need and the ability to deliver it very locally. We're excited about the possibilities there. So we'll see. we has had a tough couple of years for the field, and, and certainly the stock market has, has hammered the gene therapy se- sector accordingly, but there's a lot of amazing innovation coming generally around, I think, different forms of gene therapy, whether they're rescuing, editing, knocking down genes. I have a lot of optimism we're gonna, we're gonna solve some of these problems in the near future.
0: Yeah, it brings up an interesting point around culture. So, and this is perhaps orthogonally related to what we were just talking about, but there's inherent risk in everything that we do in biotech from an R&D perspective. I'm curious if you found uh, and are willing to share any learnings around effectively communicating that risk to your team, particularly to folks that are new to biotech. And how you continue to keep the team motivated and inspired, given that failures are so likely along the way? So that's a great question.
1: It's a great point. You know, you can't achieve something new and important without overcoming a challenge. So on day one, here's the risk. Often you know what the risk is that you have to try and overcome. You go at it and you hope you break through it. You hope you break through it in a moderate amount of time. And so firstly, I think you have to work on important problems, right? You have to pick problems to solve, both scientifically and more importantly medically, that really matter. right? So so we believe we can put a dent in a significant portion of certainly of the genetic forms of hearing loss in in the next few years. That's still going to leave a big pie of opportunities, but it'll be a first step. And so so our team, that's incredibly exciting. And I think people have to really believe in the importance of what they're trying to achieve at the macro, even if it's years out in front of them. And, you know, I've worked at a number of companies and what tied them together, that there was a huge aspiration millennium. We, we really believed that, that genomics was going to change how drug discovery was done and how we were going to understand molecular mechanisms of disease and bring new therapies to bear. Al Nileb even more so, right? Al right, Nyla worked on this problem of how do you solve the problem of delivering a double stranded oligonucleotide to a human tissue at a dose that could elicit you know, good pharmacology in an efficient way, and took them 17 years from start to first approval, which sounds like a, a long time, it is a long time. But one of the things I learned from that company, the biggest thing I learned from that company was just the belief in the importance of what they were doing, that you had to bring people together, different types of talents who were committed to solving that problem and bringing their skills to bear in solving that problem, And just an unwavering belief that they were going to solve that problem. And I mean, there were all kinds of ups and downs along the way. I mean, it was sort of like the third generation, really, of technology that effectively was the first breakthrough. And now they're on version number five or version number six, depending on how you can. But that company had this unwavering belief that they were going to solve that problem. And that focus and that commitment... You know, I was sort of there during sort of the middle section of those 17 years, but it was a fantastic lesson. And um, I think in terms of trying to you know, bring that to decibel with people who really, I think, care deeply about the dent that we could make in this huge human problem and a belief that the science that they do can actually move the needle on on the probability of achieving that. And after that, I think, you know, you have, we have the privilege of employing you know, this incredible workforce, an incredibly talented, highly educated, highly intelligent workforce. And, you know, it can't just be blind belief, right? You have to break the problem down and rationalize it and throw your best efforts at it. And then at some level, the CEO job is to go find the money to support that and to keep it alive for long enough to crack the problems, which, you know, that's probably sounds simplistic, but it's not completely. And, and you have to have people Believing when they get there that the world will really care and believing that they understand the risks, being honest with each other about what the risks are, what the challenges are, and trying to knock them down in a logical way and having a culture where people are not afraid to try and do something that's really hard. And on the wall over here, one of our first core values at Decibel is, you know, is aim high. We're trying to do something that's never been done before, and that is going to require incredible science coming together with very sophisticated understanding of people, children, and their inner ears, and how do we bring that science out of research and into the clinic? So you have to really believe that what you're doing is incredibly important for society and and the human beings who are going to benefit, and you have to really believe that you have fantastic science that can knock down those barriers, and then you have to be objective with yourself about, okay, how are we doing here? Are we making progress? Are we de-risking this situation? And sometimes maybe it's time to withdraw and and not go after that and do something different, put our resources elsewhere. You have to believe in where you're going and you have to be really, really rational and really tough on yourself about, are we de-risking it? Are we moving? Or are we doing nice no science and diluting ourselves, which is one of the, I think is one of the fundamentally hardest things that people do evaluate on an ongoing basis in this industry.
0: Yeah, wonderful advice, Lawrence. And if I might ask you for one last piece of advice, given all the success that you've had in biotech to date, and if you've had a chance to reflect on your career, what's one piece of advice that you would want to provide your younger self?
1: it's such a great question and you're the second person to ask me that question in a few days and i don't think i'd ever been asked it before so i must look like i'm getting old or something or even older (laughs) um but it is a great question and so i'm going to say two things it's a bit of a paradox of the and so the two things i say to people about that thing is firstly you know be yourself and trying to be something that you're not a people see right through it right and b I just think it's really hard for most human beings to be something that they're not. And I'll, I'll give you a bit of color on that. So I think you have to be yourself. You have to be authentic. You have to be yourself, understand what your strengths are and maybe what your strengths aren't and you know, go exploit who you are and what you're good at. But you have to understand how being yourself can be perceived by other people. And things that you think you're maybe great at or you love doing, they may really, you know, not be so exciting to some of your colleagues sitting in the next cubby. I learned the sort of the be yourself one relatively early. Funny story, if we have time, I had a performance review with my old boss Steve Holtzman. This is 25 years ago. I was a young business development guy, and he's like, you know, Mark and I, we'd, you know, we'd really like to play poker with you sometime. He obviously fancied his chances of taking a few bucks off me, and the point was. I'm fairly straightforward. I have no poker face. I'm really bad. (laughs) I have no poker face. And it was suggested that as a young business negotiating deal guy might want to work on that. And I tried for a couple of years. And it was like, this isn't happening. So either I find a different way of life or I find a different way to go at it. And I've adapted a style which is I don't try and hide the ball. It's like, this is the ball. This is what I care about. This is what I think you care about. And Can we get to some type of fair solution? And there are probably many more sophisticated business dealers than me around town and thinking like, well, that's really shitty advice. But that's how, for me, it's worked. And sort of be yourself and then try and figure out, okay, well, who's the other person? What does she need? How do I interface with her? And then later in my career, sort of the second penny dropped, which was, okay, there are things I do that are fundamental to who I am. That don't necessarily always make me my most effective. And understanding that took me till to deep in my career. I'm I'm sort of giggling about some of the other scars I have, and and just sort of it took me some ups and downs in in a recent phase of my career, and and some pretty robust feedback and some great coaching to begin to synthesise that some of my behaviours weren't getting me to the most effective outcomes, and how I need to think about about modifying some of those approaches again not in a way that changed who lawrence is but how could i behave differently or communicate differently without changing who i am or what i was trying to achieve but in a way that let me build a more collaborative relationship with people who i wanted to collaborate with and i enjoyed working with so it's like be yourself but understand the impact of yourself on other people
0: Yeah, that ties really nicely to the point at the beginning of the podcast around being a CEO and the import and gravitas that that role comes with. So that's a great point. Yeah. Well, Lawrence, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks for sharing, I'm sure, what is a very small portion of all the learnings and advice that you have to pass on. It was uh, was a treat and wishing you and your colleagues continued success at Decibel.
1: Thanks very much, Rahul. Pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.